Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. If you have a Bible, open with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. As you're turning there, how many of you would say that you like doing puzzles? Would you just slip up your hand if you're a puzzle kind of person? Okay, a few of you. Some of you look like you're ashamed to admit it or something. Um, I think puzzles are fine. Usually, um, you know, around the holidays or something, we'll usually have a puzzle going. Or, you know, like whenever we're snowed in, like we were last week or the week before, um, we had a puzzle going on our, on our dining room table. My wife and daughter, they usually like to get a puzzle going of some kind. And, um, and I like kind of doing puzzles here and there. Like, I'm not going to sit down and work on it for hours or anything, but I like to swing by every now and then, check on things, see how it's going, put a piece or two in, maybe slip a piece or two in my pocket for later. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. We did catch my youngest son doing that, though, (laughs) and I thought mom and sister were going to pack his bags and move him out right then. Um, Yeah, yeah, he had a model, right, in me. Maybe he learned something from me, maybe so. Um, but doing puzzles, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to do. It can also be a frustrating thing to do, especially if you have a big puzzle, lots of pieces, and uh, if you're trying to do it without the box, right, that has the main image on it. If you don't know what you're working towards, it's impossible. Like if I were just to hand you a puzzle piece, just a random puzzle piece, and, and you were to look at the colors and the information that is on that piece, you wouldn't be able to tell me what the big picture is that that puzzle piece goes to, would you? It'd be hard, it doesn't have enough information on it, it it doesn't have a full picture of what's happening. You need all of the other pieces to come around it so that you can see the finished final puzzle, right? In a lot of ways, our text this morning is a lot like that to me. Uh, We're looking at the Tower of Babel scene in Genesis chapter 11, and it's one of those scenes that if you don't have all the other pieces around it, it can be kind of confusing. I've been confused by it in my life before. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Maybe you have as well, or maybe there's other stories in the Bible that you come to and you're just going, I don't know what this means or how it applies or anything like that. Uh, I think the other puzzle pieces around it help you get a fuller picture. So that's what I hope to provide for us as we look at Genesis chapter 11 together. Before we read the text, though, I want us just to pray and ask the Lord if he would speak and make things clear to us. And so I'm going to pray for all of us, but you pray specifically for yourself. Ask the Lord if he would speak to you in this time. Let's pray. God, we are all coming to you in this moment, asking that you would do one thing, and that is to speak to our hearts. Lord, would you make your word clear to us? Through your, through your spirit, would you reveal what it is that we need to see? Would you help it to shape our lives more into the likeness of Jesus this morning and help us to listen? We love you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 1. Now, remember, we started this series a few weeks ago, and we've looked at the event of the flood and Noah for the past three weeks. Today, um, Noah has happened. They've gotten off the boat, and now we're in a new thing where the world is being populated, and Genesis chapter 11 is the famous story of the Tower of Babel. All right, so Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, says this, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. That's a big verse there, verse four. Verse five, the Lord's response. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this work as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it's called Babylon, for the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. All right, so I want us to look at this story, but if you've been, you know, maybe doing a Bible reading plan or something like that, and you're, you're marching along and you get to this story, it can be kind of confusing, right? Like, why does God confuse their language? That's kind of an interesting word to talk about something that the Lord does, that he confused them. And on the surface, it's kind of confusing, right? It's like, what's, what's wrong with what they're doing? They seem goal-driven, they seem creative, right? They, they, they have an ambitious goal, which we know is a good thing in life. They, they come up with a plan to reach that goal. They invent the use of brick, apparently. They also work hard to accomplish the goal. All of those are good things, right? We would teach our kids to do those same things. Have a goal, work hard at it, get a plan, work hard and, and, and get that goal accomplished. Those are good things. So the question is, why does God scatter them? And I'll just be honest with you. There was a period in my life um, eight or nine years ago where this story almost wrecked me. Like it almost wrecked my faith and all that because I was just like, I don't understand what's happening here. I don't know why the Lord would do that to these people. They're just working hard. They've got goals, they've got dreams. And why would the Lord come down and confuse them, right? Why would he destroy their building and confuse their language and then show up on the scene in the New Testament and tell us that your assignment is to go and tell the nations? Wouldn't it be much easier if we just have one language, you know? And so it's kind of confusing to me. And maybe you've ha you have some of those stories in the Bible as well that to you it just doesn't seem to make sense and you struggle with you know, thinking about it rationally and understanding the bigger picture of what's happening. What I would say is what we're about to do here. You've got to look at all the other puzzle pieces around it to see how the picture makes sense. That's what I want us to do because the truth is this. They're not being creative and driven. They're actually in direct defiance of God. They're directly defying everything that God told them to do, and they do that, they're defying God in a couple of ways. First, they're consumed with self. They are consumed with self. Verse four is the big one that, that shares their mentality and their plans, and it says this, they say, uh, let us make a name for ourselves. They want to build this city and this tower because their goal is to make a name for ourselves. This is what you would call the love of praise. Just wanting praise, attention, all about me. Now, I know that we don't struggle with that at all, do we? Like, we were reading this, and we're like, that's crazy that they were doing that, right? No, of course not. Our culture is probably the most self-consumed culture that has ever existed, isn't it? We have this thing called social media, right? And you've heard of it. Social media has taken over, and if I could define social media, it would be this. Social media is, it's all about me, right? 
It's all about me. You see it in these things called selfies. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you're with me, right? You know what a selfie is. Even Donnie Wells, he takes multiple selfies a day, I'm sure, right? Selfies uh, run rampant throughout our culture. Uh, I saw some statistics that said that there are 92 million selfies taken every single day in our world. 92 people pointing the camera at themselves and taking a photo of their beautiful face every single day. Millennials is that generation. I'm actually, my age group is considered geriatric millennials, which I find offensive. Um, <laughs> but that just means you're on the older end of the millennial scale. It means that like you know what it's like to grow up and get kicked off the internet when somebody picks up the home phone, you know, or making mixtapes on cassette tapes on your boombox and the radio. Yeah, that you're, if you identify with that, you're a geriatric millennial as well, probably. But it said that millennials, over the course of their life, on average, will take 25,700 selfies. That's a lot. 26,000 selfies over the course of a lifetime. Teenagers, obviously, are much worse because this is all they've ever known, right? We grew up in the days where you had, like, the flip phones and stuff and the phone that had snake on it. You couldn't take selfies on those. These kids, all they know is iPhones and things like that. And so, on average, teenagers today take between 2,000 and 3,000 selfies a year. Comes out to about six to eight a day, right? So, that's a lot. And, and I know that we're talking, you know, it's kind of silly, whatever, but studies have shown that the rise of selfies is actually correlating to a thing um, called narcissism, right? It's growing in our culture. Studies are finding that selfies are an indication that our culture is increasing in what's called grandiose narcissism, which is, a, which is essentially an overinflated ego and an overinflated view of self. We have an issue in our culture of people being consumed with self. It's also seen, not just in social media and selfies, but it's also seen in this idea that our culture and our world has that I would call ladder climbing, right? Just climb the ladder, get to the top. doesn't matter who you got to step on or step over to get there. Even if it's grandma, like just step over her and get to the top. Get what's yours, get what you deserve, get what makes your life just a little bit easier, right? doesn't matter if you got to sacrifice uh, your, your convictions or your sanity or your family or your faith. Just get to the top. Do whatever it takes. Our world, our culture is obsessed with the idea of me, isn't it? It's all about me. Everyone look at me. But that's not how God ever designed it to be, is it? God never designed it to be that way. In fact, you could say this. You could say that this uh, this being consumed with self is actually the root of every sin. You see it in the garden scene, right? In the first couple of pages of your Bible. Whenever uh, the man and woman are tempted to eat from the tree, what does the serpent say? Did God really say you couldn't do that? God just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be smart like he is. And they take it and they eat it. Why? Because they wanted it all about them. And you could say the same for the sin in your life, whether that's envy or lust or bitterness or jealousy, whatever it might be. Essentially, it comes down to a look at me problem. It's all about me, consumed with self. But God's will for us was never that we find our joy in being praised ourselves, but that we find our joy in knowing and praising him. Here's the thing. Whenever you live your life all for the glory of God, Instead of you having to climb to the ladder and make a name for yourself, God actually makes a name for you. Did you know that? That's what you see. Genesis chapter 12, the very next chapter, 
Genesis chapter 12, verse two, God looks at this guy named Abram and he says this, I will make your name great. (laughs) You see it? Abram didn't have to climb to some ladder and make his name great. God says, I'm gonna make your name great. Later, he tells the same thing to David. In 2 Samuel 7, 9, I will make for you a great name. You get to the New Testament, Paul says that Jesus actually has the name that is above every other name in Philippians 2, 9, and then in Revelation 3, 12, Jesus promises to write his name on us. So do you see that? The world says, go make a name for yourself, and the Bible says, no, no, no. You live for him, and he'll make a name for you. That doesn't mean you're gonna have influence and money and status and all of those different kind of comforts to your life, but if you want your life to actually count for something, which I think is what the goal of these people building this tower in Babel were actually con- consumed with is this idea, I want, my, I want my life to matter. Let's make a name for ourselves. If you want your name and your life to actually count for something, then let God make a name for you. And you do that by remaining faithful to him and the things that he's called you to. That's the better way. Don't be consumed with self. They were consumed with self. Second, they defied God by being consumed with comfort consumed with comfort. Again, verse four says, we're gonna build this tower, we're gonna build this city, make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Be scattered throughout the earth. So do you see what's happening? The first one was a love of, 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 of self. It was a love of praise. This one is a love of security. Safety, comfort, security. But here's the problem. Here's here's the why on why God had to come down and do this scattering. Because God had commanded them to scatter. And they just didn't do it. Genesis chapter one, right? God tells man and woman what? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Then after the flood scene in Genesis chapter nine, we saw it last week, God says two different times. Genesis chapter nine, verse one, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter nine, verse seven, he says it again, but you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. And then as you read, if you turn from Genesis chapter nine to Genesis chapter 10, you read that and you see that it happens. They spread out over the earth. You see a long history of the people. You see the family lineage and it it finishes in this way. The last verse of chapter 10, you can look at it in your Bible. It says, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their family records in their nations. The nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. And you're reading that and you're like, hey, good for them. They did what God told them to do. They've spread out. They filled the earth. They've gone through all corners of the earth except for they didn't. Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11 are not in chronological order. Chapter 11 explains how chapter 10 happened, right? God had to scatter them. They didn't do it on their own. So God had to scatter them. Why? Well, because they didn't do what God told them to do. He had told them to scatter, and they decided to just set up shop all in one place. Build a city, build a tower to the heavens, which just screams this, we're not going anywhere. We're good right here. We're good with our stuff and our comfort. We're not going anywhere. So I think it's important for us to do maybe a little bit of self-reflection here with this passage, right? 
We see what they were struggling with, how they defied God, consumed with self, consumed with comfort. And so I want us to do an honest self-reflection in two categories, personally and corporately. So first, personally. Ask yourself if you can identify with these people. Are you consumed with self? Are you consumed with comfort? And here's what I always say. Be honest with yourself in this evaluation because you're not gonna tell anybody else and it'd be really goofy to lie to yourself, right? Because you know the joy, you know, you know the truth, and so does God. Are you consumed with self? Are you consumed with personal comfort? Are you the most important person in any room that you walk into? Every decision that you make is to help you climb a little bit higher, to make a little bit more, to live a little bit easier. Listen, if you're a Christian, that's not your calling. That's not your purpose in life. A call to Christ is actually a call to die. Jesus says in Luke chapter nine, verse 23, says this, Jesus said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The, the call of Christ runs counter to the American dream. You realize that, right? Like the American dream is what we've, what we've defined of you get what's yours, you climb to the top, you step on whoever you gotta step on to get there. The call of Christ is different. The call of Christ is to deny yourself and take up Jesus's cross daily and follow after him. But too often, I think even Christians will give themselves some kind of a pass to live out this American dream and actually kind of spiritualize it in a way to say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to one day get after the things that God has told me to do. But first I gotta establish this, this business, you know, so that I have resources, so that I have time, so that I have actual money to give and go and do the things that he's called me to. A lot of times you'll hear college age people talk about like, yeah, I'll, I'll live for God one of these days. Like I just need to go to college and find a spouse and get my career path set and then, you know, I'm promise like I'm going to get serious about the Lord after that. But that's not the that's not the calling, right? The call of Christ is now. The call of Christ is for you to live wherever you're at, whatever stage of life that he has you. You can use your business, you can use your influence for his glory just as you can use your poverty and your singleness and all those things for his glory as well. The call of Christ is is to live now for him. So ask yourself personally, am I consumed with self? Am I consumed with comfort? And then I think we should ask that same question corporately as a church. Are we consumed with self? Our name, our influence, are we consumed with our comfort? What we've established, where we are, all of those kind of things. It's easy for churches to become so focused on how great we are, right? Got great buildings, got big budgets, got a lot of action in the community. We got a lot of things that we're doing and it's easy to get so focused on those things that I know that we would never say this because we, we know better, but in our minds we can start to think as a church, man, the Lord is lucky to have us. That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Listen, it is very true that it is completely possible to do ministry for Jesus but apart from Jesus. You can get so secure, so set on your giftings, your money, your influence, all of those different things as a church that you just kind of bypass 
Christ and his mission all along the way, right? It's easy for us to make big plans that are centered on our giftings and our abilities and our ideas, and we build these big things, and then what do we do? We get to the end of it, and we try and slap a little prayer on the end and say, God, would you bless this giant tower that we've built for you? And churches do it all the time. It's so easy to get so comfortable that we don't actually do the things that Jesus commanded us to do. What did he command us to do? Well, it's the same command that you see in Genesis. The same command that he gives the people in Genesis is the same command that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. You know it, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, meaning all authority across the entire earth has been given to him. Go make disciples of all nations. There it is. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember this, I'm with you always, even to the very ends of the age. That sounds a whole lot like Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 9, multiply and fill the earth. That's the calling. But churches fall into great danger when we're consumed with self and comfort over and above Christ and his mission. And you'll know when it happens too because you'll look at a church and it'll be full of bitterness and backbiting and gossip and slander and discontentment and all those things. There'll be little concern for the things of God and we'll just be so focused on everything else that's happening in our midst. There's gonna be a huge turnout for business meeting and nobody's gonna show up for prayer meeting. Nobody's gonna show up to serve. It'd be super easy whenever you find yourself in that kind of a place to just kind of lean back out of it and point fingers at everything that's going on on the inside that you don't agree with or don't like instead of starting with a self-reflection and going, what do I need to do to lean in and help this change? But churches fall into this all the time, this consumed with self, consumed with comfort, and you and I, as members of the body of Christ have to be proactive in pushing back against that kind of mentality of just building these beautiful towers without Jesus. So they were consumed with self, they were consumed with comfort. I want you to see what happens next. In verses five through nine, God graciously intervenes. He graciously intervenes, and I use that word graciously on purpose. See, God had two concerns with the city and the tower that they were building here. His, his first concern is, they are the, it says, they are one people all having the same language. You see that in verse six. They're one people all having the same language, meaning this, they are one, they are together, they are unified in their defiance against God. They're all in this together. They're all defying the Lord together. And his second concern, it says, is in this united state of defiance against God, he says, nothing will be impossible for them. If they continue along this track, all unified together in defiance against God, there's nothing that they won't be able to do. Meaning this, they're just gonna keep going down this track to the point where it's irreversible. Like God isn't concerned here with the idea that they're gonna build a tower and actually make it so high that they somehow reach heaven. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read this story and maybe that's the way that you understood it or heard it, heard it taught that maybe God was like going, I, I better knock them down before they actually reach me, before they get to my status. Like that's not what's happening at all. Notice the emphasis that the narrator puts on God having to come down to look at their little tower, right? 
The narrator here is making fun of this puny little tower that these mere humans have built, almost as if to say, it's cute. It's cute to think that they actually think that that's impressive to God or that they could reach his status. So the point is not that God is intimidated by this tower or the fact that they may reach God's status in some kind of way. The point is that God knows that if they stay together and unified in their defiance of him, it's gonna reach a point of no return. And so essentially what God does in this moment, what he's saying is the same thing that he said in the flood scene and the same thing that he's gonna say throughout judgments, throughout the Bible, is God is essentially saying this, I'm going to save them from themselves. They're going down a track that eventually it's gonna reach a point of no return. I'm gonna step in and I'm going to intervene and save them from themselves. This is the gospel, right? That sin has such a hold on mankind that God had to step into the picture and intervene on our behalf. Because if it keeps going, they're gonna reach a point of no return. So God puts on skin and bone and Jesus steps into this earth to live a life that you and I couldn't. He lives a perfect life. Never once sinned, never once turned on the Lord, never once defied God. He lives a perfect life and they kill him for it. They falsely accuse him, he goes on trial, they put him to death, they sentence him to die a traitor's death on a cross. He's sacrificed on the cross. His blood is the atoning payment that your sin and my sin demands. And he willingly, Hebrews says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross for you. They kill him, they put him in a tomb because he's dead. Three days later though, just as he said he would, he comes bursting out of that tomb alive, proving that he's God proving that he has power over sin and death forever. He then ascends into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God right now, and Hebrews says he's sitting down because the work is finished. And you and I, everyone who recognizes our sin problem and recognizes our need for a savior, and we cry out to him and say, Jesus, would you save me? Scripture says if you do that, then you're saved. You're a child of God. You go from being an enemy of God to a child of God. That is the good news of the gospel, right? That, that God intervened in grace and mercy into the world by sending Jesus. And in this scene, in Genesis chapter 11, God intervenes in grace and mercy and God scatters them. He scatters them so that they could actually go and do the thing that he had called them to do all along. He confuses their languages. They stop building the city Verse eight says, and they scatter and fill the earth. So I told you that this, this scene is, is chaotic, it's confusing. I used to really struggle with understanding what's going on here, but you gotta have the other puzzle pieces to come together to make the bigger picture of what's happening. And what I would say is, is we see that bigger picture in looking at Jesus, that Christ is the clarity in the chaos of this scene. So if we're asking why would God confuse language and then tell us later to go to all the nations and proclaim his gospel to the world, wouldn't it be much easier if he hadn't done that? Like, wouldn't it be much easier if we just had one language? I think that's a small view of God, as if, as if diversity of languages and cultures is a hindrance to world missions. That's not how God sees it at all. This story makes sense through the lens of Jesus. That yes, God did confused their language. God divided the nations in this moment because of sin, but Christ redeems it. You see it in Acts chapter 2, the story of Pentecost. You remember that story, right? 
After, after Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells them in Acts 1.8, he says, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And then Jesus just like, takes an ele- elevator ride and goes up into heaven right in front of their eyes, right? You remember that? And then his followers pray for a number of days. And then there's this moment where scripture says in Acts chapter two that the Holy Spirit comes down upon them this flaming tongue is seen above them and they start speaking in different languages. But guess what? The languages aren't confusing. The languages are able to be understood. So what you see there is that through the good news of Jesus, the curse of Babel was reversed. And now it's not something that's a hindrance to the gospel. It's actually something that God uses for his own glory and good. Languages and nations aren't a hindrance to the gospel. In fact, what you can see by looking at our world today is they are actually a catalyst for the gospel going to every corner of the world. Christianity is spreading today faster in other parts of the world than it is in the United States. Did you know that? It's spreading fastest in Africa, South America, and Asia. But the place that it's spreading the fastest right now, today, you'll never guess it. It's a place called Iran, where persecution and Hardships are unbearable. The church of Jesus Christ is going underground and it's spreading like wildfire in the face of persecution because that's what the good news does, right? Multiple languages and nations don't scare God. The kingdom is advancing in the face of it. And he's given you and me a job as Christians, as his followers. He's given us a job and that job is this. Don't focus on yourself. Scatter. Take it to the nations. Take the gospel to all the nations. And what he's doing is although in Genesis chapter 11, the nations are scattered and languages are formed and all that, God is actually using that to build a kingdom that stretches throughout the whole earth. And one day, you and I are gonna join in the most beautiful global choir the world has ever seen. I want you to imagine the beauty of this song of heaven as every language, every tribe, every nation cries out and sings the same song together. Picture this with me. Revelation chapter 7. This is what it says heaven looks like. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, here it is, all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues singing this together, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just like our God? That he takes this horrible sin moment with these people in Babel trying to build this cute little city and tower and he uses it to create the nations and the languages of the earth And in doing so, he sets the stage for the most glorious praise of Christ from every corner of the earth. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful scene. And that's what we have to look forward to. I think where it comes down and meets us where we are today is by going back to those self-reflection questions. Am I consumed with self? Am I consumed with comfort? And ask yourself, what towers have you built that need to be torn down? What towers of self, what towers of comfort have you built that need to be torn down? Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. 
To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.